Hello, friends, and welcome to Grassroots. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is going on and how you can protect yourself and your family and live a healthy and safe life in this increasingly unhealthy world. So one day this week, I came downstairs, and there's Patty and our garbage can filled with tea. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Patty, what's going on with tea? You threw out all of our tea. Yeah, well, it was it was kind of like the Boston Tea Party in our own kitchen, but yeah. it's it. <laughs> I, I was motivated because there was a study that came out by Momovation. This is a nonprofit organization that looks at different things that are common in our lives and does testing on them, basically everything from toilet paper to tea bags, and finds those that have the least amount of toxic chemicals in them. And this one was really important because we drink a lot of tea, and I think a lot of other people do too. And so if your tea or, in fact, your tea bag has toxic ingredients in them, maybe you should switch to a different brand, and that's what we're talking about here. So the Momovation study found that not all teas are created equal. Uh, in fact, some of the teas that position themselves as healthy have been found to be full of pesticides, artificial flavorings, plasticizing chemicals, and even chemicals that are used on the paper for the tea bags themselves. You know, people drink tea thinking that it's a healthy well, thing to yeah, do. I drink that green tea with kombucha every morning and, you know, I, I feel great. I was glad to see that was not one of the teas that ended up in the garbage can. So, right, because it's made by a company that actually doesn't have any of these toxic ingredients in them. Yeah, so did I hear you say it's in the glue that glues the tea bag together or something like that? Yeah, that it's actually a resin. This is the one I think is most concerning, and that is this chemical. It's called epichlorohydrin, and it is a carcinogen, known carcinogen, and it's a resin with a high wet strength for the paper industry. Well, you can see why it's used, right? It keeps the paper strong, even if it yeah. gets wet. So that was, you know, one of the things that they looked for and found in many teas that we're just so used to in this country, like Lipton and Tetley and Twinings and Red Rose. I mean, we used to drink all those different types of teas too. But, you know, for specific testing, they were looking at pesticide residues and 91% of celestial seasonings teas had high pesticide residues. It actually prompted a class action lawsuit, which really? is amazing. I never heard about that. No, I, I had no idea. And then 77% of Tivana teas failed the European Union standards. Is there good news? Are there, are there teas that people can drink? I mean, I drink the yogi tea, right? Isn't that what? Yeah. So it was it was generally agreed that that loose teas are best. Mm -hmm. And of those loose teas, they name the following: Arbor Teas, Frontier, which I believe is a manufacturer of teas that distributes through co-ops. Mm -hmm. um, Three sixty five Whole Foods Market loose black tea that also gets on the uh, on the A-list, and then tea forte. So you have those loose teas, and those are literally the best that you can drink. And then for the tea bag teas, uh, the, you have Eden, uh, especially Kukicha is a really good one. Yogi teas, which is where your green tea with kombucha comes in, Doug. Um, choice teas, Allegro teas, and traditional medicinals. Mm. All of those teas are safe. They have safe 
tea bags and the teas themselves are not um, problematic. So be careful about the tea that you drink, but uh, it's good to know that there are some some good brands out there. Anyway, do you have any good news? Yeah, there is some good news. Petaluma, California has a school board that has just voted not to place any more cell antennas on the two high schools in their town. Um, and in fact, to eventually eliminate the ones that are there. So this was an effort with a lot of groups involved, including us. And we did things like everyone else did, sending letters and science to the school board, and apparently it paid off. So we spoke with one of the organizers of this effort, Lendry Purcell, and here it is. We have two public high schools in Petaluma, Casa Grande High School and Petaluma High. Um, We've had a giant cell tower up there since 2017. The district currently makes $30,000 a year, roughly, for having the tower. And it's just sort of been there and folks have known about it. And, you know, over the years, there's been some people who've mentioned it, but there's been no real move to do anything about it. It came on my radar a little while ago. And again, I just kind of didn't, it just got pushed to the back burner. Last year, the um, lease was renewed through 2027. It just kind of happened quietly. So we thought it was time to go to the school board and and just inquire what's going on with this tower. A school board member said that the cellular company was coming back to the district asking if they could lease additional space for more antennas. And and it was going to be on the school board like in a week or something we had, you know, maybe less than 14 days to educate the public and mobilize the school board and get the community involved. And um, we were able to do that. There is so much compelling science out there and there are already moratoriums in place in Temecula, no new towers on schools. And we have a very smart and rational school board. We have a public health officials. We have youth on the board who go to that school who are athletes. The tower is located like right above the stadium, the football field. We've had a football coach pass away, 40 years old, just imminently kind of passed away quickly. We were told cancer. And then not too long before that, we had another athletic coach in his 30s pass away abruptly from cancer. So we educated the school board and we sent emails to to all the teachers at the school and all the staff about the tower and things they should know. And uh, the school board got our expert testimonies sent in from from different experts around the country, from doctors, from scientists. They read it. They were thoughtful. And we uh, a group of advocates came to the meeting. We weren't sure it would happen. And the um, superintendent sort of said, why do we even have this tower? What? How is it serving our students? That was the big question. How is it serving our students and staff? And everyone said it's not. And $30,000 means nothing to them considering the risks. And there's a lot of disappointment that it was ever allowed to be there. No one on this board was around in 2017. And so now we're in a place where the board agreed to moratorium on no new towers. So they're they're going to be working with the folks in Temecula to put that together. They agreed to, of course, not expand this tower. And it may be so that the tower can be taken down um, because there were some improper things that happened in the um, permit process. And that's being um, looked at now by the by the attorneys. So that was Lindry Purcell out in uh, Petaluma, California. We were happy to be part of the 
many groups that weighed in on behalf. And good for you, Lundry, and good for all of the other advocates in Petaluma who, you know, kept their cool and just continued to advocate for doing what's right. Very happy to be part of that. The world in which children live today is dramatically different from the way it was just 10 years ago, and orders of magnitude different than 20 years ago. While many children still play tag, jump rope, swing on swings, and enjoy water play of any sort, more and more of their lives are being spent in front of an electronic screen with lights and colors and sounds constantly stimulating their developing brains and vying for their attention. This exposure became amplified during the COVID-19 pandemic, Studies show that even preschool children are now spending 30 to 50% of their waking hours in front of a screen. No matter how you look at it, our children are the subjects in a worldwide experiment to see what happens when an entire generation of humans lets go of the ways in which people have learned to live in a society for thousands of years. What happens when they take up this entirely new way of learning? The other part of this experiment, of course, is what happens to a generation of children who are exposed to radio frequency radiation for long periods of time during critical windows of development. Since the 1950s, studies have shown that exposure to this type of radiation can initiate biological changes. And over the past 75 years, as scientists have developed sharper tools, the impact of these changes has become more apparent. Dr. Erica Mallory Blythe is a UK-trained medical doctor with a decade of experience in hospital medicine, including surgery, anesthesiology, obstetrics, pediatrics, and intensive care for both infants and adults. In 2008, she began researching biological effects of non-ionizing radiation and formally transitioned from clinical medicine to full-time research in 2015. She's the founder of Physicians Health Initiative for Radiation and Environment. And Patty and I had a chance to talk with Dr. Mallory Blythe last week. We started by asking her about her support for the International Declaration on the Human Rights of Children in the Digital Age and why she chose to be one of the primary signatories on this new document. To me, it's very simple, actually. When we have a risk to health, when we're trying to look for immediate actions and priorities, we have to think who is most at risk and can they make their own decisions on it? And very clearly and very quickly, I deduced children are at high risk, more so than adults potentially, and they don't have the capacity to give consent on this issue. So those two things all by themselves really led me to take a very protective stance towards children in this respect. I know many others have also. It's really, are they benefiting and can they consent? And when you look at those, this is a risk versus benefit analysis. And when you look at that, there are, you can distill it down to really quite simple components. And it's about what are the benefits? What are the risks? And are the people involved giving informed consent? And to me, this area becomes extremely black and white when you look at it in that way. Something that the government might ordinarily be expected to do, right? But it's not doing? Absolutely. And, you know, when you look back through history in terms of environmental toxicants, there's always been a lag and and a sort of a hurry towards the industrial side of things and move things along from a financial perspective with too slow attention to the health consequences of, of that action. 
So this risk benefit has really kind of changed its definition over time. I mean, the benefit is usually an economic benefit to the provider or the producer of a risky product or technology. And then the risk is, you know, falls on the most vulnerable in our society. I've never looked at a risk benefit in that way. And that's because of my background as a medical doctor. I think a lot of the way we analyze these things does come down to our training and our core ethics. And you would like to hope that regardless of anyone's training, their core ethic would be to put health absolutely the top of that analysis. But I recognize that not everyone's trained to do it in that way. I am, you know, that's that's my raison d'etre, given my background. So I understand, I'm not naive, I understand that cost analysis needs to be factored in on some level into these things. And there can be serious consequences to health if there are financial deficits in a nation. You know, partly the budget is essential to making sure we have good healthcare provision. But one of the other reasons I focused on children and Wi-Fi in schools in particular is because in that setting, Again, this becomes incredibly, to me, crystal clear, black and white, is that you look at what is the benefit to those children in that setting of having the use of radio frequency radiation? Why does it need to be there? And what is the risk to them? And it's just incredibly straightforward. They don't need that kind of exposure in order to access the internet or for any educational reason. They don't need that. And given that, the risk benefit becomes incredibly simple. It's there for convenience of staff generally. And we can provide education. We can provide learning. In fact, there's great evidence that the best way to teach children is is a human being talking to them. That's the best way that they learn. And so it's a very straightforward argument for me to make. And I'm going to continue making it because I, I've yet to hear anyone who's ever argued sensibly that there's some kind of need for radio frequency radiation in school. So you're in the UK and we are here in the US and what kind of progress has been made both on the educational level and uh, the government level in the UK to try to remediate some of these exposures, if anything? Well, on a generalized governmental level, nothing. I mean, there, it's not something that's been given any thought at all. But on a more local level, there have been a number of individual scenarios where children have had acute symptoms relating to the radio frequency in the school. And those have been deeply analysed and laid out. And it's been found to be a legitimate concern that needed disability accommodation. So um, there has been one case, for example, that's gone through the upper tribunal, that's the equivalent of a high court. And it was found that that child needed to have disability accommodations made, which required a low EMF learning environment for that child to be safe and healthy and able to learn. And it's actually not, not always that hard to achieve that. I think people can feel very overwhelmed, but we can look actually, ironically, look to the military and Silicon Valley and things like that. And many of these groups are actually not using radio frequency radiation for their internal communications at all. And there's a long list of reasons for that, everything from data security to better equipment, longevity, etc. But it's not like we're 
actually treading a new path here to accommodate people who are disabled by their reaction. It's not new at all. And in fact, the, the most high tech groups on the planet are often using hardwired internet connections. And that's all that's been advocated in order to accommodate EHS as a disability is essentially hardwire your internet, keep phones in, in flight mode, keep the RF disabled on them in those spaces. And again, you know, there's just no reason to have active phones in a, wireless phones like that in a school setting where there's usually landline infrastructure in those schools pre-existing anyway. So because you are a medical doctor, I would love to ask you this question. And that is that, you know, you feel that children are uniquely vulnerable to this risk. Uh, what about pregnant women? What, if anything, has been done in the UK? What can you tell us about that, that particular vulnerability? Again, the answer is at a broad government level here in the UK, nothing's been done to advise those groups. Um, and I think it's in incredibly important that that changes. Often women will carry their devices in their pocket, which, which can be immensely close to the developing fetus. And there's some excellent papers now demonstrating the increased vulnerability at those, at those stages of development. And really, we have a great deal more to learn on the effects of this at the different stages. They will all be different depending on how completed the organism is, if you like, including after birth and as the child is developing then. Of course, uh, I'm torn because on the one hand, you say we would like to see more research to make that clearer. On the other hand, given that the way we get those answers is by looking at the effects on children. No, I don't want to see that research in that way. I think we have more than enough evidence to say that actually the younger they are, the more dramatic could be the consequences. We, we just need to urgently lower their exposure. Let me ask you, uh, from your perspective as a medical professional, as you look at the landscape of people who've been affected, can you talk about kind of when you first noticed this happening and how it's been over the past, let's say, decade or longer? Well, as with all these things, we tend to layer in this technology and these exposures over time. So it is, I would say, as we would expect, that we we see this the symptoms rising over time. We see the disease endpoints being researched and identified over time, and it can take many decades for us to fully understand the links between exposure and the different myriad of potential endpoints. And um, this one is, like some other exposures, is a difficult one to predict in some ways because it's multi-systemic, because it, it penetrates the body and it can affect multiple different cell types in multiple different systems. We have to be aware and open to the fact that this could have an enormously long list of different cascades of reactions. When I say cascades, that starts with disruption on an atomical molecular level and that cascades into cellular disruption. And then you can link that to certain systems and then up to the endpoint diagnoses. And there are quite a few listed now in the literature and we would never expect to suddenly get that information quickly because unfortunately, a great deal of it derives from watching people get sick over time and putting those pieces of the puzzle together. So that's what's been happening. And a lot of the information that myself and my colleagues share in our lectures and publications now is a product of watching that evolve. And there will be a great deal more to come. But you'll be aware, for example, of some of the literature on cancer and the links with certain types of tumours. 
And what's the reason that often gets cited and discussed is because we're at a point now where in the earlier studies from Leonard Hardell et al., his colleagues, um, that were used in the International Agency for Research on Cancer's designation of radiofrequency radiation as a group 2B carcinogen. That happened back in 2011. And that early literature said to us, well, looking at human epidemiological studies, we can see that humans that have used their cell phone more intensely, especially for longer durations, like over 10 years of use, have increased risk of certain tumor types. And at the time, that was glioblastoma multiforme, GBM, which is a very virulent, very aggressive type of brain tumor that is not felt to be curable. It's got a very poor five-year survival, almost none. And then... Um, also, another type of tumour called acoustic neuroma, uh, which in humans in these studies, is um, it was generally a benign tumour found in the vestibular nerve. Um, it's a Schwann cell type of tumour. And what was very, very compelling to me is that as we watched this data unfold over the years, those tumour types were corroborated as causal from radiofrequency radiation when they then did animal studies. So we first of all, we had the National Toxicology Programme, the NTP study, which was at its time the largest study ever done looking at the effects of this on rats. And they found, you know, fascinatingly, they found the same tumor types as had been shown in these human studies. And then the Ramatsini Institute study, which um, looked, this is very important, especially looking at the comparator of Wi-Fi in schools, they were looking at far field radiation, at um, radiation from a, a base station. And so much lower intensities than T the NTP, and yet they found the same tumor types again. And this time they found the schwannomas in the hearts of the animals. They obviously weren't using a bone directly to their head to have it in the vestibular nerve. But the, the corroboration of this data that we'd already seen from human studies was immensely important in my view um, and, and generally in terms of the construct of uh, science and medicine and how we determine causality. This showed that this was highly unlikely to be some kind of incidental finding. It was to see it in more than one species like that and uh, an element of dose response, which is what was seen is very compelling indeed. And the NTP study concluded clear evidence of causal link between the exposure of radiofrequency radiation and the tumor types that they observed, specifically uh, looking at schwannoma. So um, really, I feel like over time, the evidence has got stronger and stronger and stronger, especially, of course, in some niche areas. And yet, surprisingly, the evolution in terms of tech and exposure to children has gone in entirely the opposite direction, which is deeply concerning and one of the reasons I continue to try to shed light. We're familiar with the, um, uh, very familiar with the NTP study and the Ramazzini study, um, you know, and one of the things that that we have talked about and everybody here in the US um, is, you know, proximity is everything, but the Ramazzini study really kind of, you know, blew some holes in that, didn't it? Because that was a far field study, as you say, and yet you were seeing the same types of tumors from mm. far field exposure to cell phone towers, as opposed to having, you know, a cell phone directly against your head. How do you square with that? Personally, I think a lot of people were surprised and obviously very disturbed by these results. I, I on a personal level, I wasn't surprised. Um, and 
the reason one of the reasons I wasn't surprised is that for people with electromagnetic hypersensitivity who are complaining symptomatically they will absolutely get symptoms in the far field and and sometimes they can have responses to really minute doses of this radiation now this is obviously a very different process potentially to malignancy but we must remember the important thing is that this radiation is designed by its very nature to carry for a very very long distance and the signals that are emitted from all of the devices carry on infinitesimally. You know, they, they don't stop, but they do, of course, degrade in terms of their intensity. But the human body, uh, we, we evolved as humans to receive very, very subtle, low-intensity energy from our environment that can regulate our, our various different biorhythms. And so I suppose... To me, it wasn't a surprise, it, but it was something that increased the seriousness of the message that well, whilst a lot of people have, have tried to trivialise the exposures in the far field, like as with from routers, that we absolutely cannot do that. And, and another thing I would say, I suppose, is that people often forget how these devices are used in practice as well. And whilst we will definitely get the most intense exposures from using um, something like a mobile phone to the head, and that's why there's been a lot of press raising the question, is that a safe practice? And I would say it's not a safe practice to put it right to your head the way that so many do. But in addition, we have to think, how do children use computers? How do they use tablets and iPads, et cetera? And the, the answer is they hold them right close to their body. They're small. They want to see what's going on. They hold them near. And sometimes they will sit with them on their lap or very close against their abdominopelvic organs. And so we shouldn't only be considering this link with phones and brain tumours. We have to extrapolate that to the other organs that are potentially receiving similar or even higher doses. You can get very comparable uh, SARS or specific absorption rates from something like a tablet emitting radiation right next to the abdomen, potentially as you would in the brain. Last question. You've dedicated your life, Erica, to this issue. Are you optimistic? I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> so I have to say, I have to say yes. I always default to the fact that it's all about, it's a matter of time, isn't it? We, we on some level, we do evolve, not as rapidly as I would hope. But you, you only have to look really, it's what, what's happened with smoking, for example, um, is that I, I don't get me wrong, I'm not really comparing these two because I think there are so many reasons why this is far more difficult and far more of a concern given the number of people it affects. But I guess it gives some hope that policy can change even in the face of in, enormous industrial revenue. It, eventually, humanity seems to find their way to a better space and that's often facilitated by a happy replacement. What I would say and would suggest is that there are answers here. There are tech solutions to be found. It's not that I'm advocating that we suddenly return to, you know, the dark ages and, and abandon all our tech. And I already, we have so many solutions, solutions that in a classroom work, you know, instantly to dramatically reduce children's exposure. So, I am optimistic. Do I think it will be fast? No, I think it will take some time. 
I'm very sad to say, I think the changes will be forced by the legal system rather than by an acceptance within the bodies who you would hope would protect children's health, i.e. The, the advisory groups on, on health. I think these things usually move faster through the courtrooms than they do that way. And that's, that's where we need to change as a society. It shouldn't happen that way. We should be more proactive. Dr. Erica Mowry-Blythe, a UK-trained medical doctor and founder of Physicians Health Initiative for Radiation and Environment. That's going to do it for this edition of Grassroots. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Erica Mowry-Blythe, and to all our listeners. The conversation continues online on our social media channels, on Facebook at Grassroots Info, or Instagram at Grassroots underscore Info, or on the Tech Safe Schools Facebook page at Tech Safe Schools. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Grassroots. Thanks for listening. Thank you.